Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello. Hi. Or should I say, zigasay ah. Welcome back to Old Millennials. I'm one of your hosts, Margo. And I'm your other host, Emily. And today we are going to be talking about the Spice Girls. Hence my obvious reference at the top of the episode so excited for today we've been talking about doing a spice girls episode for a long time there is a lot to go through but it wasn't as long as like say the backstreet boys research ended up being because the height of their popularity was truly a year and a half two years yeah it was an 18 month ordeal and i think the peak like the the apex yeah 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 i think it attests itself to like as you're a kid time is so much slower and I think that's why I felt like the the rise and and the the peak of Spice Girls movement was a much longer time than its eighteen month. Time I think period. it was also something, especially one of the first things when you're growing up that you became attached to and watched grow. Yes, like the you it was the first standum, if you will. Yeah, uh, Spice Mania was, and you just got really invested and involved from the very first time that you heard wannabe until jerry left and it devastated you and you knew things would never be the same but you thought friendship was forever i guess it isn't it's just until we release this movie friendship does in fact end and it was devastating (laughs) there are two moments from like elementary school middle school that i remember as being super duper dramatic like to the point where my even my mom knew what was happening and one of them was unfortunately when rihanna died or not rihanna saw oh my god Aaliyah died don't put that out there, Margo. I was, yeah, I went to dance class. There's a lot of Rihanna happening. But when Aaliyah died, the plane crash happened, and my mom woke me up in the morning. She's like, oh, my God, Aaliyah died in a plane crash. I'm like, I don't want to wake up to that. And then the other one was seeing a newspaper that announced that Jerry was leaving the Spice Girls. And then I guess the sort of like the zealous time was the Misha Barton thing happening because that was also something I didn't need to know right then and there. Yeah, I remember the day Jerry left. There was 
my parents listened to NPR on the radio. My dad had picked me up from school, and there was an NPR story from like all NPR things, story. Like all things considered, did a thing on it. Like that. This is this was a big deal. There were two huge things that happened. I mean, I'll get into it since it's my portion, but. Even them firing their manager was front page news, which I guess it sort of is now if you think about like Justin Bieber when he left Scooter Braun temporarily or whatever that whole yeah. dust up was. That was like a huge deal. I mean, sort of similar to Scooter Braun buying Taylor Swift's back catalog. There's there's still some like music things that make the front page that capture everybody's attention, but not the way that Jerry leaving or even them firing their manager was. Yeah. Was there so little happening in 1997 and 1998 that? We were that invested. I guess maybe it was sort of Big Brother-esque where we were very involved in, like, the day-to-day happenings of the Spice Girls. Yeah, and I think it was because they were such a prepackaged pop sensation. Something like this to happen out of nowhere was a big deal, I think. You didn't – it wasn't a scripted thing. They very much had been, as we know, like an orchestrated group. Even – their movie was barely scripted, so right, exactly. it felt like all, they just said yes. I got the impression, right? And they, I think, because they were so off the cuff, that's what resonated so much with kids and girls our age. I mean, it definitely perpetuated this fantasy of like, oh yeah, when you grow up, it's basically the same thing. Like you're always hanging out with your best friends. It's a constant slumber party, and you always just get rewarded for doing your own thing. Which is why I was surprised that my husband was surprised when you and I immediately said, oh, yeah, I, like, which Spice Girl were you? And he was like, in what scenario are all of you pretending to be Spice Girls? Like, Halloween? I'm like, no, no. you would pretend to be the Spice Girls, like, with all your group of friends. the time. Who are you most? Because I feel like you are always, to keep the peace, there had to be some sort of rotation happening, yeah, right? Because sure. everybody wants to be at least one other one, so you got to be, like, switching it up. So which one were you the most? I was most often Emma, um, a.k.a. Baby Spice, because I was the only blonde girl. I mean, that tracks. Also, as I said earlier, because you also look like a baby. I do look like (laughs) a baby. Who are you? I was mostly Posh Spice, and then sometimes I would be Jerry, but not often. And not because we had, like, a redheaded friend, just there were other people who embodied her spirit better than I did. Mm. So Posh was the most one, but like I told you earlier, in my group of friends, it truly to keep from fights happening all the time and like people legit like shit talking each other and be like she thinks that she's like a better scary than i am like she has no idea what she's it was talking a about big deal. it was so competitive it was like being in theater without any of like the actual structure or schedule of yeah. being in theater but it was a big fucking deal i mean i remember i had a spice girls themed birthday party in the fifth grade where it was the best day of my life i got every single present was spice girl themed and I got, like, a giant tin full of their branded lollipops. Mm-hmm. And me and my best friend oh would God, dole them out. So good. They were so good they and so terrible. Yeah. And we doled them out very judiciously throughout, like, holidays or, like, special occasions. Like, our birthdays, we would have one. But we, we basically hung on to those lollipops for, like, over a year. I had those, the candy. I had the, the gum. So oh. they had gum. And in the bubble gum wrapper, they would have a sticker of a Spice Girl. And years later, when I was in college, one of my favorite professors, shout out Colin Rafferty, if you're listening, as a birthday present to me, he somehow still had a piece of this gum, like somewhere in like a box of knickknacks. And he gave it to me. How'd it taste? Oh, I didn't taste it. No, no. This was like 2009 and or 2010. Uh, there's no way in hell I was going to eat 1998 bubblegum. So I kept it, though. I have, like, the little wrapper. What if you missed your chance to be, like, the new Spider-Man? That's true. <laughs> By I eating could, this I could turn, toxic gum. I turn into a 
Spice Girl. Yeah, you turn into like a superhero Spice Girl, Super Spice Spider Man. I will not take that risk. <laughs> I think the. But do you still have that shocky ass gum? Yeah, I have it in the wrapper. I kept huh. it because I thought it was like kind of cute. You should take a picture of it and put it on the gram. I know. I need to find it. It's somewhere in my apartment. Well. Where do we even start? I mean, there's so much because there's also like there's there are tons of deep connections to the Spice Girls, but I think we should just start at the beginning. I yeah. felt like in doing a little bit of research, I did feel a bit overwhelmed. Yeah. But n- keeping the perspective that this is only over the course of a two year span was helpful. But they did so much, much shit. But their origin story is almost more interesting than the stuff that came afterwards, which you would think because Spice World, the movie, felt sort of autobiographical, that it would cue perhaps a little bit closer to their real story, but nope. the real story is much more compelling. Way more compelling. I mean, Spice World is still great, and the story is still fine, but their real origin story is quite the trip. I would watch that biopic. So there were, in the beginning, um, there were several big UK boy bands at the time, most notably Take That. These are bands that like were huge in Europe and the UK, didn't make it as big in the US, but anyway, they were huge. Uh, Bob and Chris Herbert of Heart Management, this is a father and son producing duo, wanted to create a grew- a girl version of that success and like go with it and just make a ton of money. They were British, Lou Perlman, and if he had a son. Lou Perlman Jr. Yeah. So in, Lou Jr. In, early Febu- in February 1994, they placed an ad in The Stage magazine. And about 400 women attended the auditions, and I will read it out Oh, is loud. it like a backstage West where you yeah, just post casting notices? Yeah, circle your, exactly. Wanted, are you 18 to 23 with the ability to sing slash dance? Are you streetwise, outgoing, ambitious, and dedicated? Heart Management Limited are a widely successful music industry management consortium performing <laughs> a choreographed... Consortium? I mean, I think this was like their first thing ever. I mean, it's... I guess maybe it's like a, a, a British thing. A but. British thing. <laughs> um, choreographed, singing, dancing, all-female pop act for a recording deal. Open audition. 400 women show up to this. But um, I just love that they tried to make it hip and cool by using a capital R and a capital yeah. U for R-U. As if Prince wrote this. <laughs> it does look a little princish. Again, <laughs> the illusion and the mystique that they're building, like most of these fucking shell corporations, will turn out to be largely sad. So after these auditions, the final 12 that get picked for the next round include Victoria Adams, because that's her maiden name, Melanie Brown, Melanie Chisholm, and Michelle Stevenson. So then in a second... When I was reading this, I was like, who the fuck is Michelle? She's like the what's the Jason from NSYNC. That's oh, right. Yeah. Lance Bass and Emma Button do kind of have like a similar vibe they though. They do. They do. And you know what? I wouldn't be surprised to know that because of their various careers, they're low-key friends. I would not be surprised at all. Lance Bass is friends with Jax Taylor from Vanderpump Rules. And again, sorry to always bring up Vanderpump Rules, <laughs> but all roads lead back there. Give me a six degrees in, of reality show and I will make it work. <laughs> So this group show gets together, and uh, Jerry Halliwell later joins in the second round of auditions, and they start working on their demos, and their original name is Touch. Which I've always found to be deeply creepy. <laughs> what a strange original name. I, anyway, they later fired Stevenson because she, quote, didn't have the work ethic, and she was replaced with Emma Bunton, their Lance Bass. So a couple months into this, they realized, like, this is bullshit. They don't have a contract. So they keep dangling this carrot that they'll eventually get a recording contract, the management group, and they never get As that. if this is making the band without the cameras. Exactly. And so 
they pressure the guys the to set up an A&R showcase for them. And so it's like a showcase with writers, A&R people, all that. There, it's pretty successful, and they get to meet all these great people, including Richard Stannard, who ends up becoming one of their primary songwriters, along with his songwriting partner, Matt Rowe. And so they schedule a few writing sessions where they write some of the songs that would eventually become part of Spice. Over time, though, they finally get a contract from the management team, and it's shit. Like, uh, Victoria's dad, who's a lawyer, looks at it, and he's like, you guys should not sign this. So they decide, like, fuck this, we're going to leave. And in the middle of the night, not only do they leave this management group, they steal their masters because that is badass. It's like national treasure, but pop culture music. <laughs> I, w- I wish Nicholas Cage. Or pop music, excuse me. I wish Nicholas Cage was a part of this. I wish he was Cage Spice. <laughs> So they go off and uh, they t- track down a producer from the showcase that they like named Elliot Kennedy. They had had a meeting scheduled with him a long time ago via their old management group, but now that they were no longer together, it's like the mating was canceled. So Jerry and Melanie B go to Sheffield because that's where he lives. They go and look through a fucking phone book for Elliot Kennedy and they call like three of them and they find the Elliot Kennedy. This is like rom-com shit. I mean, it, this is like, you could not make this up. I mean, you could. That's uh, plenty of writers have. But this is, like, for real. So then Elliot Kennedy is like, yeah, I'll work with you guys um, after they they have discussions. And then he introduces them to the producing group, Absolute, who then intros them to Simon Fuller of 19 Entertainment. And if you don't know who Simon Fuller is, you will definitely... Or if his name sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, he is the father of British pop in the 90s and early 2000s. He created Pop Idol, which is uh, has spawned many spinoffs around the world, including American Idol, um, and So You Think You Can Dance. He managed the Spice Girls, David and Victoria Beckham's careers, Annie Lennox, S Club 7, Steven Tyler of Aerosmith, Andy Murray, Amy Winehouse. Wait, Andy Murray, the tennis player? Yes. What? Yes. Okay. And Carrie Underwood and Kelly Clarkson, of course, because of American Idol. So they end up signing with Virgin Records in September 1995. They had to change their name from Spice to the Spice Girls because there was a rapper in the U.S. that already used that name. So Did we ever look up the rapper? His I name kn- is Spice One. I think he's from Hayward. I, oh. I was Bay Area Connection. Interesting. Yes. I had never heard of Spice One. Same. So that leads into... Oh, wait. Do you have anything about how they got their nicknames? Yes. There was a journalist who was basically lazy and decided to just give them their nicknames. Yay, misogyny, doing something positive-ish. And it, it was, like, I love that out of this misogyny came out, like, a multi-million dollar, like, cash cow. Mm-hmm. Just, that he will see zero cents from. Yep. I love it. It's, like, po- it's poetic justice. Well, girl power and feminism and all of that, as Scary Spice once imitated Ginger Spice in Spice World once said. So eventually they release Wannabe, which is their first big single, and that is going to be on Spice. So I'm going to dive into the album Spice and talk more about Wannabe and a couple of the singles. Released on September 19, 1996 in the UK. Something to note here is it does get released in other places, including the U.S., closer to like 1997. So we in the U.S. had quote-unquote Spice Mania, if you will, a little bit later than the rest of uh, Europe and the U.K., and so it was recorded between 95 and 96. It sold more than 23 million copies worldwide, becoming the best-selling album by a female group of all time. It was the big singles from the album are, of course, Wannabe, Say You'll Be There, To Become One. And then it was released as a double A-side, which is something I don't think people do anymore. But Mama and Who Do You Think You Are 
which I think they have a lot of double A side it's releases. It's kind of weird. Like I tried to do break this down as best I could. I ended up not really going into Mamo because I think Who Do You Think You Are was really the big hit here. But this was actually released for comic relief, which is something they do in the UK every year on TV. It's the telethon with the red noses. Oh, oh, so yeah. it's the same like the red nose day or whatever that happens. Exactly, here. and it's started by Richard Curtis, like the guy who created all the British rom coms in the nineties. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I've the, seen Love Actually. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Four weddings and a funeral, all that. So in the UK, all four singles went to number one on the UK singles chart and on the Billboard Hot 100. The album spawned three top five singles. And this, like, was just insane. They had no, because they had not had a girl group, like, I mean, this is like the 60s, I think, had been like the last time you had seen a girl group. They had no idea, like, this formula would work so well. It was like a total fluke. And the big first single, obviously, is Wannabe, which was released in July 1996 in the UK. It's written by Standard & Row, the songwriters, along with the Spice Girls. And one of the interesting things is, of course, we get the phrase Zigga Zig Ah in the lyrics. And I didn't know what that meant, but apparently Mel, Mel C. once told Billboard magazine, quote, You know when you're in a gang and you're having a laugh and you make up silly words? Well, we were having a giggle and made up this silly word, Zigga Zig Ah which we were in the studio and it all came together in the song. So that is how Zig Zig Ah came to be. While most of the songs on the Spice album required two or three days of studio time, Wannabe was recorded in less than an hour and they wrote it in Those like are always the ones yep. that become the yep. biggest earworm and yep. make the most money. Yep. I don't really know. It's seriously the same shit whenever we have a sketch show. The dumbest sketch that you wrote in the last hour right before your meeting is always the one that's the funniest and it's the best. It's always the best. Because you're not thinking about it. No, exactly. There's no pressure. There's no let's perfect this, whatnot. Well, they were just having a laugh saying zigga say ah um, like you do with your friends. Exactly. I mean, I did use wannabe as a quote. I, when one of my best friends got married last year, one of her bridesmaids set up like this bridal luncheon and we were supposed to like bring in like a picture and like a quote that we thought would like represented love and good wishes or whatever. Anyway, one of my friends thought that she could just like read the quote off her hand, but it was like printed on the back of the picture. And so the host picked a quote for her and it was friends forever. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> not a quote, but now it's something that we say and attribute to just this friend. But I use the quotes from wannabe and standing up in a room that's like, partially her family who does not know me very well and just being like if you want to be my love it was did not go over the way that i had planned but i laughed on the inside so i enjoyed that at least it's like a say ah to me the music video which i don't think is that exciting but the like <laughs> the filming conditions were not great so it was, really apparently it was freezing cold they had to do oh. it in one take i mean they are in london because it's one i mean it is one single camera shot if you watch the no whole it's very thing, good yeah. fellas it is very good fellas very like, which i'm paul, sure is paul. exactly the comparison they wanted they wanted this inspired paul thomas anderson's early scene in boogie nights which is one single take wouldn't that be a gas if that was true, though? I wish. I hope. There are some weird celebrity connections once we do get to Spice World. Like, just how small is London? They run into so many people. So many people. Essentially, this music video was banned in some parts of Asia. Because it was so cold, Mel B's nipples were erect, and so they had to ban, they had to ban the video in Asia. Hashtag free the nipple, yo. Yep, yep. Apparently, they also wanted to film another video for the U.S. market because they thought people would think it was too controversial 
Virgin was concerned that old people appeared on the video, the part where they jump up on the table, and that Halliwell's showgirl outfit would be considered too threatening by music channels. And so they wanted to do a reshoot for the U.S., but the group refused. And then, of course, it ends up winning Best Dance Video at the 1997 MTV Music Video Awards. I mean, the first time I watched that music video, I thought they were maybe, like, ghosts or, like, supposed to be ghosts or something. Because no one was reacting to them being wild in this hotel. So, like, oh, like, can no one else see them? That's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what Taylor – I feel like there's a Taylor Swift music video that last year, like, two years ago came out that basically did that. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it turns out that's not the case, but – I mean, what was there to reshoot? It, it seems, it's just like all of the Harry Potter controversy. Like, in retrospect, it seems very overblown to have so much controversy over something so benign. It, for sure. The music video for Wannabe was directed by the guy who ended up directing the music video for Save Tonight by Eagle Eye Cherry. That is the only other music video this guy has directed. <laughs> What a way to go out. Uh, eagle yeah. Eye Cherry. Eagle Eye Cherry. We'll have an Eagle Eye Cherry. Are we I doing an episode on that? His sister was Nini Cherry, who wrote the, you know, the song Buffalo Stamp. I was like, don't say Nini Cherry as if, like, yeah, for sure, me and Nini. Not leaks, obviously. No. <laughs> Hang out all the time. A Buffalo Stamp. Yeah, I know that song. She wrote that. Yeah, that's her. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Probably brother her. was less successful. <laughs> second single was of course say you'll be there which i think is a better song than wannabe and i really wish better music video better music video i really wish that was a song when you go to a bar and they play a throwback i really wish that was the one they would play we should bring it back at karaoke this was also the music video that up until spice world was the music video i acted out the most with my friends because there was like a plot or some semblance of a sure i mean the plot was like they were like badass brides in the desert like dancing like doing kung fu and then they dead proof a dude before dead proof was even out on the hood of a car yeah i mean it's pretty badass i enjoyed it very much it was inspired by um (laughs) i rewatched that video twice in as many days So guess who's dressing up like a Spice Girl for Halloween now? I'm so excited. I cannot wait. <laughs> I've tried to put this group costume together several times, and I've always failed. Maybe this will be your year. Maybe this is my year. The year of the spice. Um, the music video was inspired by Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, and Pulp Fiction. So in this, the girls play like action star, alter egos of themselves. Jerry Halliwell came up with the nicknames. Melcy played <laughs> Katrina High Kick. Halliwell played Trixie Firecracker. Emma took on the role of Kung Fu Candy, and Adams was Midnight Miss Suki, and <laughs> Melby was Blazing Bad Zula. By the way, every time I mention Victoria's name, it's so weird to call her Victoria Adams because she has been it's pre-Beckham Beckham for so long, which we'll get into later. But some symbolism via Wikipedia, the shots of male bondage are unexplained and function as symbols of male disempowerment just as the rest of the clip serves to assert the power and fighting abilities of the women. Thank you right, so this is honestly death, death proof before it happened, which is funny because they were partially inspired by Quentin Tarantino. The other singles, To Become One, which you're not as much of a fan it's of. It's a lesser sex song to uh, Too Much, which I think is a better sexy song. I think this is a really pretty song. I think I, I too, appreciate too much more than to become one but i still i don't know why it didn't make me uncomfortable as a kid but i listened to it again over the weekend i was like hey i don't want to hear this right now it's (laughs) just hit next a little uncomfortable the lyrics focus uh are about like hooking up but then there's also a responsible side to it about contraception such as the lyrics be a little bit wiser baby 
put it on, put it on. Gross, Emily. I know. <laughs> uh, there was a Spanish version of this song. <laughs> this was not the place that you were going to next. Seremos uno los dios, or los dos. <laughs> oh, right. Yep. Oh, and then they also changed the lyrics. In the album, it was, any deal that we endeavor, boys and girls feel good together. And then the single version, they changed, and Victoria Beckham sang it, and it was, once again, if we endeavor, love will bring us back together. So then Victoria Beckham started singing that lyric instead of Jerry, and she claims it was because it was a hard key for her to sing in, which I don't really get, but okay. Singing is a loose term. Yes. Yeah, which we will talk about with the Spice Girls. The other final single I really want to bring up here is going to be Who Do You Think You Are, which is a great song. I really love it. And what I love about it is, on top of it being still a bop, it was what they performed at the 1997 Brit Awards, and that is when Jerry Halliwar wore the famous Union Jack dress at that performance. Basically, after that awards performance, it just made headlines everywhere. And basically, it was a black Gucci dress that she had gotten, and she didn't feel comfortable wearing it because she was like, it doesn't stand out enough. So her sister stitched a tea towel, a Union Jack tea towel, on the dress, and that's the dress. Oh, how big was that fucking tea towel? Apparently big, but also, like, the dress only, like... You guys yeah. can't see me, but it's a really short dress. Like, you can kind of see her underwear in certain... Some shots where yeah. they're all, like, standing in a line and stuff. But anyway, it became super iconic. It was on every single newspaper, headline, what have you. And then a year later, it was sold at a charity auction. And at the time, it was sold for £41,000 in 1998, which is now £72,000, which is $87,000 US dollars. And it holds the Guinness World Record for the most expensive piece of pop star clothing dealt at an auction. And I think that's pretty much all I really want to cover in Spice. Oh, yeah. sure. Well, Spice World is an interesting beast. It was the absolute height of their popularity. And 1997, when this album came out, they were doing a ton of stuff in addition to just like old school spawns gone. So here's a small sampling of what they did do in 97 besides write, record, Spice World the album to support Spice World the movie. Nelson Mandela called them his heroes. They arrived at Cannes by a speedboat to announce plans for Spice Girls for a Spice Girls movie, later titled Spice World. They squeezed slash cuddled 13-year-old Prince Harry at the same Nelson Mandela event. And two, this is two months after the funeral of Princess Diana. They collectively earned an estimated 300 million pounds in merchandise sales. But most importantly, they recorded Spice World the album on the side of Spice World the movie so that Spice World the movie could have a soundtrack, a.k.a. the album. Spice Mania was so well on its, beyond well on its way. Like, it had already swept up the nation. As soon as Wannabe had hit and it had, like, a long chart life, it was pretty much over. They were getting criticized in the States, though, for releasing a second album just nine months after the American release of Spice. They received further criticism because of the impact and the amount of sponsorship deals that they had signed. Case in point, they had recorded two promotional singles for Spice World prior to the release of the album, Step to Me and Move Closer, Generation Next. Both songs were used in a Pepsi commercial and were also given away with some free special thing. And that was Pepsi's logo for a while. It was Generation Next. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure Move Over, Generation Next was written expressly for Pepsi, but yeah. was released as another one of these, like, 
a double A side things. Right. So Spice World, the album was released November 1st, 1997 by Virgin Records. The album became a commercial success worldwide, lengthening Spice Mania, much to the chagrin of parents everywhere. First week sales, they sold 190,000 copies. They shipped 1.4 million copies in two weeks. The album reached number one in 13 countries while peaking inside of top three in Australia, Canada, France, Switzerland, and the States. Spice World sold over 13 million copies worldwide, making it the world's best-selling album by a girl group ever. Which, I mean, Spice has a very similar track record, too. They they are the best-selling girl group of all time. Yeah. I think, like, when I looked at the list of best-selling albums by girl groups, it was number one was Spice, and I believe it was number two or number three was Spice World. Like, I think one in between might have been, like, TLC's crazy, sexy, cool, or something like or that. Or fan mail, because I know fan mail did gangbusters, too. Right, I don't right. know the exact numbers off the top of my right. head, but... The album spawned four singles, all of which had huge commercial success. The lead single was Spice Up Your Life, and had an iconic music video where they were sort of, like, in Gotham, flying around on, like, hoverboards. I told you this earlier, but um, <laughs> Say You'll Be There and the Honey music videos, and also to, like, a lesser extent, Spice Up Your Life, these are, like, some of the things that made me want to go into film because those music videos were my absolute entire life all of the time. Spice of Your Life became an international success, success, obviously, peaking in the top five position in most countries, followed by the singles Too Much, which is the superior sexy sex song, I think. It's a lot more subtle. It's a lot more singable, and it's a little bit more dancey. Stop, which is another great single that should have been way bigger than it ended up being. The yeah. music video is so charming. It's, like, really, like, 60s twiggy art pop and it felt like really down to you which comes out a couple years later and viva forever which coincidentally will be the last single that they release as a group with jerry hollowell spice world was well received by all critics and obviously sold a shit ton spice world was also recorded simultaneously while they were shooting the movie like literally like spice up your life was heard 24 hours before the she the scene for it was shot Simon Fuller, their manager, would just tell the director, like, don't worry, we'll have a song, and then all of a sudden they'd have a song the next day. So working on Spice World while filming, they had a mobile studio on set, so some of the songs in the album were written and started at the same time of the movie, but they also had space at Abbey Road, where they were on hold for, like, a couple of months, and they would pop, bop in and out of there in between shooting, oftentimes coming in from a day on set without taking off makeup, like, still in costume, would come and record. So they were complete workhorses. I think... There's a really great article on The Telegraph called When the Spice Girls Hit Con, The Inside Story of Spice World, The Worst Film Ever Made by Alice Vincent. And it has a lot of really interesting stories from people who worked on Spice World, the movie, and also the album. There weren't a ton of crossover in terms of like music in the movie, but in terms of the amount of people who were involved, which were a lot because they pulled, the, they pulled off both over the shorter than a year, essentially. Which is a crazy fucking turnaround time yeah. for a movie and an album at the same time. But by all accounts, they were extreme professionals and they worked their asses off. And they just said yes. It was as if they knew that they had this tiny window of time and that they were just going to do everything and have the best time ever. And obviously, all of that spoke to a younger demographic of like, oh, this is what a, being an adult can be. So they would come in and out of Abbey Road, still in costume, and they also still had the mobile studio on site that had everything in it. And so sometimes they would just deliver songs straight from the Winnebago into the set. Which leads in perfectly into Spice World, the movie. So thanks to Alice Vincent's reportage of a 20-year retrospective on Spice World, it's nice to know that 
everybody who worked on the movie behind the scenes in front of the camera everybody has a fond affection just as much of an affection as like the fan base does mm-hmm. which i think is really wonderful working with the spice girls they started talks with their manager simon fuller in 1996 1997 about the best way to boost their international popularity and cachet and they all agreed the natural step would be a movie which will turn out to be I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Be what we all know as Spice World, the cinematic experience. So between November 1st, 1996, when the producers and writers met to embark on the film and like talk about what it would look like, to the film's investment where they got a bunch of money from Khan six months later, the girls had released four number one singles and rarely a day went by without them being reported about in the press. So the summary for Spice World, in a nutshell, is world-famous pop group The Spice Girls zip around London in their luxurious double-decker tour bus, having various adventures and performing for their fans. Spice World was directed by Bob Spears, who had directed a bunch of legendary British TV comedies like Faulty Towers, Ab Fab, and French and Saunders, who had poked fun at the Spice Girls in a sketch before. Yes, and I have something to say about that. When they released Who Do You Think You Are, and that was the Red Nose Day single or the um, comic relief, they did a parody Spice Girl group, and they were called the Sugar Drops. And it was French and Saunders were a part of it, as was the British 60s pop singer Lulu and a couple of other older Oh my women. God, Lulu. Yeah, and so they and the, the premise is basically that they're schoolgirls dreaming of becoming the Spice Girls and then they find themselves in a music video with the Spice Girls. Great. Yes. Thanks for pulling out that tidbit because I did not look it up. I was like, oh, I don't remember that French and Saunders sketch. And they come up later too, French and Saunders later on in the career. Spice World was released January 23rd, 1998 to a massive LA premiere at the Grammys Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. It was essentially the second coming of the Beatles and I was there. My poor mom took me and a neighbor friend to the premiere on Hollywood Boulevard. It was freezing cold, middle of January, and it was crazy. I don't know if I've ever been in a crowd that wild, festivals included. I mean, it was packed. 
they were on this giant Union Jack painted double decker tour bus. They were up on the top in all white matching suits. They looked amazing. They actually spent time like walking around, signing autographs. Like I could see them, but I was, you know how when you're in a giant crowd, you're like several rows behind the barricade to yeah. where they are. I was yeah. maybe like three rows of people back. Uh. So I could barely see them, but because I had begged and pleaded, my grandmother and my mother uh, got me baby spice platform sandal shoes for Christmas of which my poor grandmother this is probably why she was like I'm not coming for Christmas anymore <laughs> I like forced her to like do a fashion shoot where I did all of the like girl power poses like in front of our <laughs> garage I was like it's gonna be artsy <laughs> me and these fucking shoes and my hair and pigtails because that was the only hair do I to pull off I'm like I'm not gonna cut my hair short like posh so I'll just do pigtails and like whatever we'll improvise not a big deal <laughs> which is a great segue back to Spice World, the movie, because a lot of it was sort of improvised on behalf of the Spice Girls. But we'll get to that in a second. It ended up being a critical success, which is something they didn't expect. But I think because it was so lighthearted and campy and critics were expecting less than nothing, mm. that they were pleasantly surprised. So it was, and it was obviously a commercial success, grossing $10 million opening weekend and $56 million worldwide overall gross on a... $25 million budget, which is fucking crazy. Mm -hmm. That's a ton of money. Also, this was almost a directed VHS release. Spice World was written by Kim Fuller, who is Simon Fuller's brother, and who will also go on to write from Justin to Kelly. Of course. Kim wrote this film on spec after the girls got a script back from Disney, who they had an option deal with, and they didn't like it. So the only thing that they kind of kept from the original was, like, the single mother friend that they, like, are best friends with. Oh, yeah. That sort of tie. She has a girl. Yep, but they trashed the rest in order to incorporate the girls' ideas and give them something to work something to work with. As the Telegraph article points out, they all knew they're not actors. They're good at being themselves. So we have to write these characters to be within the character trope that they've established and that they're comfortable being all the time. It was originally called Five until Jamie Curtis came in to do punch-ups. Kim wanted to write a camp caper that gave the group's fans a Spice Girl insight that they not had, had not witnessed before, so hence like the day in the life sort of hard day's night aspect of right. it. The Spice Girls were really involved in forming the script, and apparently Jerry took the lead on a lot of it and wrote a lot of the dialogue, because she would go in there, or be on the phone with Kim Fuller and be like, that doesn't work, like, they would never say that, and this, that, and the other thing. And it was a struggle even to get them to write the script. Kim Fuller had to call them into, like, an impromptu meeting, make them turn off their phones, and then he just read the entire script to them. And so they just, like, made some line edits as they went along. Mm. But other than that, they really liked it, and that was kind of the only time that they probably read the script all the way through. But we'll also circle back to some other fun script stuff because they were super involved in that. The Spice Girls went to Cannes to secure funding for their movie, and it was a genius PR coup orchestrated by Dennis Davidson, which sounds like a fake name, I know, but he's British, so give him a break. So at Cannes, obviously, it's this very highbrow, snooty, self-serious films that are premiering there. So the Spice Girls were like a complete breath of fresh. The Spice Girls show up to Con via a boat with scarves wrapped around their heads, a la Grace Kelly, and the reaction from the crowd was so overwhelming and immediate that they sold film rights to every territory present at the festival especially after they had a photo call at the martinez hotel where they stood 
on the like sort of like the awning on top of like the entrance they had to like double check with like engineers that they weren't gonna like fall to their deaths tragically and once they made they sent out like the press release announcement that that was what they were gonna do the streets were completely packed all of the traffic came to a complete standstill nobody could get through and that's when investors were like here's a check i don't even know how much i don't know who they are i don't fucking care this is clearly a fad and i'm going to cash in on it so spice world was (laughs) Very star-studded, and it didn't really start off that way. It sort of started off with them sort of joking of, like, do you think we'd be able to get this person or this person? And they'd put their feelers out, and their people would get back to the Spice World producers and be like, oh, my God, fuck yeah, they, like, totally love the Spice Girls. They want to be a part of it. And it's wild how many people they were able to rope into their orbit. And it's a random array, and it ranges from Meatloaf, who is their tour bus driver, to... Bob Hoskins, who is a very well-respected theater British actor. Roger Moore fucking Bond, who apparently showed up on set and everybody was, like, super tense. And he made a joke about – he made a joke asking the cast and crew, so do I owe anybody money here or are we cool? And Alan Cumming, who the girls just were like, oh, we saw Alan Cumming in Hamlet and he's great. We should get him for the movie. LOL. And then he was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. (laughs) Richard E. Grant's daughter – Saves him again and helps his career. Well, this is the first time, and the second time is the Barbara Streisand thing last year. But helped his career out in unknowable ways when she told him that he needed to play the Spice Girls manager. Gary Oldman and his eight-year-old son ran into the Spice Girls on the street one day, and their eight-year-old was such a fan that the Spice Girls invited him to be an extra in the party scene. So they came up with the idea and agreed to do it in November. They started shooting... June 9th. They wrapped August 1st. The movie was delivered November 1st. And then Spice World, the album, came out November 7th or something like that. Oh, my God. Emma apparently went to Sylvia Young at theater school in London and was the most... Like, they were all professional, but she was the one that had the most experience sort of on set. Like, she knew how to hit her marks. She knew where the camera was. She understood where how to like do different takes because the huge thing that they were concerned about, especially Kim Fuller, was that they weren't going to do multiple takes. Like, they're not going to be giving you more than what you get two, three takes in. So since it was so off the cuff and there was no rehearsals leading up to it, he would go in there and sort of like run through the scenes of the day with them. And then by the time that they were ready to go and roll, they would normally get it in one or two takes. Simon Fuller rejected younger hipper directors because he wanted this to be done as straightforward as possible. And nothing is more straightforward than a workhorse TV director. There was a huge wardrobe truck just for the girls' costumes, no one else's, and a separate truck just for their shoes because their giant boots took up so much fucking room. And at some point, this is how popular they were. Everybody was desperate to get a piece of the Spice Girls. They just had clothes thrown at them. Nobody needed to call or anything. Everybody was just happy to be a part of it, to be considered possibly for this movie. It was also the height of their paparazzi fame, so much so that a mini riot happened when they were shooting a crowd scene, and they did like the Spice Girls did like a little impromptu meet and greet walk around, and all of a sudden, it, a riot breaks out between the crowd and the police. As I said, it, they never rehearsed once prior to shooting. They just showed up one day on a ring, wing in a fucking prayer, and that's probably what works best about the movie is how easy and naturalistic it is. It really feels like we're getting sort of an authentic look into their lives, and so when you hear that like Jerry was heavily invested, that all of the girls just the writing brainstorm sessions were them hanging out for a couple of days with Kim Fuller, just telling them a bunch of stories of all the crazy shit that they had gone up against. So it's wild to me that stealing their masters from that wild father-son management sham team was not included in the movie. But anyway, this was also one of the first movies I scammed my way into seeing twice because my parents are divorced and it was great. 
Um, and what's ironic is that everything that happens in this movie will go on to happen in real life. So we're going to get into, like, the shittiest part of Spice Girls, Spice Mania, and it's Jerry's Departure, Forever the Album, which I still cannot listen to all the way through, and their inevitable hiatus. So I think there are a few pop culture horsemen that singled the end of the phenomenon. One is They Are Every Way by Way of SpawnCon. And honestly, when I think about the Spice Girls, I think the next natural predecessor in my mind is Jessica Simpson. I remember at the Hydro Frame, she was fucking everywhere, and people started to turn on her. And it was starting to happen in the Spice Girls a little bit. They fired the management that got them famous. Someone in the original crew leaves, and it's aggressively passed off as a good thing. And then inevitably, a hiatus announcement will happen. So after a few months after wrapping the movie, they did indeed leave their manager like they did in the movie. Because they were being pushed too hard by all accounts... After their performance at the MTV European Awards and two months before the premiere of Spice World, they fired Simon Fuller so that they can manage themselves, which always sounds a little bit like when a serial killer says they want to represent themselves in court. But they were really young, so they didn't fucking know what they were talking about. <laughs> anyway, this was this was the moment that many believed was when the band sort of lost their direction. So in December of 97, the second single from Spice World, Too Much, was released, and it became the group's second Christmas number one and the sixth consecutive number one single in the UK. The group ended 1997 as the most played artist on American radio. They were tapped to record the England World Cup song, How Does It Feel to Be on Top of the World? And little did they know that was going to be the last song they would record with Jerry until 2007. On May 31st, 1998, Jerry Hollowell announced her departure from the Spice Girls through her lawyer. She claimed that she was suffering from exhaustion and wanted to take a break, but rumors of a power struggle between her and Brown as the reason of departures circulating in the press, but that seems very natural considering all the paparazzi following them, hounding them, documenting their day-to-day. Of course, conspiracy theories were going to leak out. Her group shocked fans. I, for one, was deeply upset because, to me, friends forever, obviously, and, like, it's one of those things where it's one for all and all for one. When one of you leaves, like, it felt like the beginning of the end when Jerry left. For sure. And I think all fans sort of felt that way. Not so much the Simon Fuller thing. I think that's more of, like, an industry thing, being like, oh, yeah, this is the beginning of the end. But Jerry leaving the band really signaled sort of, like, a downturn in what was going to come next. Jerry leaving the Spice Girls was one of the biggest entertainment news stories of the year. It made headlines all over the world, and the four remaining members said that they were going to carry on. This is like a fun fact. Jerry announced her departure from the group almost a year to the day before Napster went online. At the time that she left the group in 1998, Jerry said she was living in a pokey cottage at the back of Hedfordshire Dairy Farm, where, in her own words, she spent the weekends, quote-unquote, crying. Seeing whereas the Spice Girls were subjects of some of the first and worst hate pages on the internet where users would graphically fantasize about torturing and murdering them. People were talking shit about them, like Vivian Westwood called their aggressive marketing as child molestation. Tom York called them the Antichrist. It was probably a lot to balance on top of their wild two years of recording and releasing two albums and making a movie and then also their promo blitz, and not to mention that they will also go on tour altogether before they split up. I can think back to 1998 about with like that whole online hate vitriol thing where it's like some of the first hate web pages were devoted to them. That was also the time some of, like, real shitty GeoCities sites being right. like, oh yeah, like I'd fuck a scary spice. It's like disgusting. And it was around the time of the Clinton Lewinsky scandal, so that she Monica Lewinsky had to deal with a lot of the same kind of thing. And Michelle Williams from Dawson's Creek of all people. I remember reading when we did our episode, um, a couple of our episodes where we've been talking about Dawson's Creek, she specifically doesn't have an Instagram, Twitter, and has no like online presence whatsoever because she was so hurt by seeing these pages when she was first on Dawson's Creek. 
Oh. Yeah. That explains a lot. I thought she was just a private person, which is also part of it, too. But, yeah. yes, I suppose if you were so aggressively bullied online when the internet was not, you know, tons of Twitter trolls, but felt really scary yeah. and new and specific to you, because it was, obviously, if somebody put a right. bunch of energy into making this page where they talk about how terrible of a person you are or live out their rape revenge fantasy on you, can be incredibly traumatic. So I'm surprised the Spice Girls have an online presence even now. But it seems like a lot of things just sort of rolled off their back at that time, mostly, I'm assuming, because they were young, because one of the things that they also did in 97 was Baby Spice turned 21. So if she was 21, they're all plus or minus within five years of each other. They were children mm-hmm. when they were the most popular, which explains why they would fire their manager. This is an interesting tidbit that I pulled straight from the Spice Girls Wikipedia, mostly because I thought it was interesting and it's a little too lawyery and specific for me to sort of editorialize, so here it goes. It came out in a lawsuit in March of 1998 that Jerry informed the other members of the group of her intention to withdraw, yet the girls signed her game with AWS at 24 on March 24th and again on April 30th and participated in a commercial shoot on May 4th in Milan, eventually concluding a contract with AWS in May of 1998. The Court of Appeals in England and Wales held that their contract their conduct constituted a misrepresentation by giving the impression that Jerry intended to remain part of the group for the foreseeable future, allowing AWS to rescind their contract with the Spice Girls. This is now a leading case in English law on misrepresentation by conduct. Wow. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I couldn't, I mean, I knew it was like kind of technical, and AWS sounds like just like a sponsorship deal that they had. I wasn't really sure what that was. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting enough, especially because it's now something that they study in English law. Wow. Um, quick tidbits leading up to the end of the Spice Girls for now and a bit on forever. The album that follows Spice World. Before that, we must talk about the last single that gets released, Viva Forever. The video for the single was made before Jerry's departure and features the girls in a stop-motion animated form. The North American tour began in West Palm Beach on June 15th and grossed $60 million and had 40 sold-out performances. While on tour in the States, the group continued to record new material and released a song, Goodbye, before Christmas. The song was seen as a tribute to Jerry, and when it dropped in the UK singles chart, it became their third consecutive Christmas number one. They were coming from Mariah Carey's crown, equaling the record previously set by the Beatles, which is another reason why they get compared to the Beatles so much. The Spice Girls returned to the studio in August uh, the following year, in 99, after an eight-month break, and they started to work on Forever. The album's sound was initially more pop influence, but... Considering that they were trying to do, like, you know, New Year, New Us kind of sound, they brought in, sorry, they decided to take a more mature direction and brought in American producers like Rodney Jerkins, Jimmy Jam, and Terry Lewis, who were all very, yeah, at the top of their, yeah, all at the top of their game in 99. Lewis came in to collaborate with the group. In the U.S., the album Forever peaked at number 39 on the Billboard 200 chart. The lead single from Forever, a double A-side again, Holler slash Let Love Lead the Way, which are the only two songs I'm super familiar with, became their ninth number one single in the UK. However, the song failed to break into the Billboard Hot 100 charts stateside and peaked at number seven at the bubbling under 100 singles. In December 2000, the group unofficially announced that they were beginning an indefinite hiatus and would be concentrating on their solo careers, which would give us Scary Spice and Sporty Spice and Baby Spice's single career and also a little bit of posh, but then she'll go on to be Victoria Beckham, the fashion designer. In regards to the foreseeable future, they were not going to be recording, and the group pointed out that they weren't splitting up, they were just taking a break. But hashtag friendship never ends. 
And that leads into the first reunion. Around 2006, there were a lot of uh, speculations that the group would get together or the group would reunite. People weren't sure if Jerry would be included. And finally, on June 28, 2007, the group held a press conference at the O2 Arena in London, revealing their intention to reunite as a group. Then comes up the return of the Spice Girls World Tour, which was meant to be just a handful of dates and primarily in the UK. Ticket sales for that first London date were sold out in 38 seconds. It's reported that over 1 million people signed up in the UK alone for the pre-sale and over 5 million worldwide for the ticket ballot on the band's official website. 16 additional dates in London were added and those all sold out within one minute. And then the US, Vegas, LA, and San Jose shows were also sold out, which prompted them to add a bunch more dates. So then they added a whole bunch of dates all over the world. Overall, the tour ended up producing over $100 million, $107.2 million in ticket sales and merchandising with sponsorship and ad deals, bringing the total to $200 million. And that's because they did a bit major ad campaign with Tesco, which is a British supermarket chain uh, around that time. Um, They're really smart about their sponsorship deals. They really are. And uh, they, um, they've done very well for themselves. I saw them during that reunion tour with my sister. I had a blast. I saw them in Toronto because they had not announced a DC tour date yet. It was a combined Christmas and birthday present because those tickets were not cheap, but it was fucking awesome. I'm so happy I did it. And if they ever were to tour the US, I would, again, I would do it again. I thought the funniest thing about Katie Weaver's piece on the Spice Girls in the New York Times was that when she went to go see them on their most recent tour, which grossed just as much as BTK? Or BTS. B- not- Fuck! <laughs> Oh my god! Don't yes. come for we. we this, we're gonna have to cut. That you'll out. have to cut that. They will come for us. I do not want a BTS hive on me. Um, it's <laughs> Katie Weaver went to see Spice Girls on their most recent reunion tour, which grossed just as much as BTS's tour, which had way more dates than they did. Yeah. Just it grossed just as much. She was stricken. Yeah, I, she was stricken by how thin the discography really is yeah i think and that they i mean they haven't really recorded any new music so all they really have been doing is sort of every time they have a reunion tour they've just been playing the same stuff which i have no problems with i still haven't seen it live so keep please keep playing the hits until i can afford to figure out how to get there yeah but i just find it to be amazing (laughs) the lasting cultural impact of the spice girls being popular for two very good years well, I guess now, you know, their demographic has now grown up and we have disposable some disposable income. income and some of us have kids too. And so it's being brought to a new generation. So I can see similar to Star this being our Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. And I think, the, so the BTS thing, I think it's, they compare it to maybe not all of BTS's tour, but around the, like the same amount of dates or something like that. But maybe I'm wrong. Uh, in addition to the second reunion tour, they performed at the 2012 London Olympics closing ceremony, a medley of Wannabe and Spice Up Your Life. And there was also a jukebox musical that came out in London's West End in 2012. Didn't uh, French and Sanders write that? Then, exactly, yeah. So Jennifer Saunders wrote that, um, who is half of... Icon the, Queen Legend. Love her. Uh, they generated over $2 million in pre-ticket sales. However, it was a complete failure otherwise. Um, got really terrible reviews. They closed it seven months later, and they had a loss of around five million pounds on it. So it was an interesting choice. (laughs) 
So after, with all that's been said and done about the Spice Girls, they came out, I think, at the right, they were at the right place at the right time from a British perspective. So the Spice Girls' major big breakthrough was actually during peak Britpop. So this is around the time when Oasis and Blur were kind of battling it out. Um, Oasis is what the, What's the Story, Morning Glory had just come out. That's the one, the album with like Wonderwall is on it, Don't Look Back in Anger. So this was a part, I think- Acoustic guitar enthusiasts everywhere's favorite songs. Three chords, baby, three chords. It became a major part of what has been known as Cool Britannia. Now, Cool Britannia was a time in the 90s when Tony Blair and the Labour Party were elected in 1997. You had a major club scene in the UK. This is post-Thatcher UK, which had seen a major decline politically and socially in the 70s and 80s. And it was kind of a revamp of like the swinging 60s in London. People were really proud of their British culture again. Austin Powers came out around this time. <laughs> All of the Hugh Grant, Richard Curtis romantic comedies. Right. David Beckham and Manchester United. So, you know, David Beckham ends up marrying Victoria Adams, now Beckham. So that becomes a huge thing. Obviously, unfortunately, Princess Diana died. But before then had been such a huge fashion icon and all that. And this was uh, mirrored. It echoed the time in the 60s known as Swinging London, where British fashion and culture were all together along with politics signaling a new era and a rise in British love and culture after seeing decline in the post-war years so in the 60s you had mary quant with the miniskirt um in the 90 and mod fashion and twiggy in the 90s you had kate moss and you had alexander mcqueen and you had um just british platform buffalo platform shoes and street fashion and it was very and at the time in the 60s they had also uh, re-elected the, they had elected the labor party and that came in in the time as well so interesting parallels to the british invasion in the 60s and then the british invasion of the 90s well, the Spice Girls also, I think it's specifically Jerry, spoke out when the UK were considering converting from pounds to the euro, mm-hmm. and she spoke out against doing that, saying that the pound is like part of the British identity and you can't change that out and just become muted with everybody else and get thrown under the umbrella of just a euro. But it's, as you talked about, the cultural impact in the UK. I touched on it a a bunch throughout everything that I researched and was talking about earlier, but mostly the phrase girl power. I think they were branding geniuses, although they started out using their nicknames in a way to take the power back from a douchebag news reporter, not bothering to learn their real names. They were really smart to stay within their archetypes and they, their main power and their biggest impact and influence on young girls was being able, as I said earlier, to project the fantasy of what adulthood, what adulthood would be like, but also to impart some values along the way. And they needed to be broad because they were, they were trying to appeal on such a large international stage that they had to do something as broad as girl power that could be distilled into something as simple as just feminism, especially for little kids in order for them to grasp that concept of like feminism is like standing up and hanging out with your friends. And at the same time that they were shooting Spice World, they wrote a Spice World book as well that essentially was their manifesto, for lack of a better term, of what they thought feminism and girl power meant. But they needed to have a message that could be distilled and easily made into merchandise, which how many things were covered in girl power? There were trapper keepers, binders, backpack, t-shirts, like everything that you could slap girl power on. And that was a really good way to identify themselves just out in the wild. So say you hadn't 
heard of the Spice Girls. That way, it's an easily identifiable thing to be like, you're a Spice Girl fan. I'm a Spice Girl fan. We both have girl power paraphernalia on. Your parents easily know that you're talking about the Spice Girls. And I think it was one of the first few girl bands that were able to brand themselves in such a way without making it feel cheap. Everything that they did truly felt organic and felt like something that came from them. And according to the book, I mean, the, the girl power slogan is their idea. I mean, I think it was workshopped eventually to get to it. It wasn't like they woke up one day and said that, but I believe it was like Jerry spearheaded a lot of the creative ideas that the girls all rallied around. And I think that that's the best thing about the Spice Girls is their ability to rally around each other and be each other's best hype man and that they were felt natural, off the cuff, perfect improvisers because they didn't know that they were even improvising. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you look at the numbers of, uh, for example, like Spice went to on to be number one in more than 17 countries across the world and was certified multi-platinum in 27 countries and platinum in 14 countries. And I think that states the fact that, like, no matter where you were in this world, there was the people were Spice Girl fans and it was a, such a global phenomenon, which I think we see more of now. But I think prior to the Spice Girls, I think a lot more of those bands were very region or national specific like sure i mean the to be big in the uk or europe as we learned with the boy bands is one thing to break onto u.s church is incredibly difficult and to have a catch fire the way that they did as soon as wannabe dropped they really did they crested that wave really well and i think a lot of it has to do with simon fuller because he really kind of directed and navigated them but they were also incredibly involved and very very hands-on yeah and it was a very good combination of right time right place and we, I don't think we would see a British crossover band like this until, what, One Direction? Yeah, no, because as close Not with, like, it, a level... Not the level of straight-up fucking unbridled pandemonium whenever they would show up. Right. It's the... The reason why they keep being compared to the Beatles all the time is that no other British band, I think, had such a hysterical impact on, men, like, girls and boys from the ages of, like, 8 to 14. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree And that's, like, you. a prized demographic. Because I looked at some of the other Simon Fuller bands, and the big one after, of course, is S Club 7. And S Club 7 was huge in the UK and kind of big with a certain group in the US, but, like, they really didn't break through No, they were sort much. of underground in the sense that right. if you really liked British pop, especially girl groups, and you were just looking for one, yeah. they were very solid and a good successor to Spice Girls, but they never got the radio play that Spice Girls get. No, absolutely ever. not. And maybe some of it is because this, I can't recall an S Club 7 music video off the top of my head, but maybe it's because they came too late. It's like anything, whenever you show up 20 minutes late to the party, yep. it's a huge difference in how drunk everybody is. <laughs> no, it's true. You're absolutely right. I was a fan of theirs, but yeah, it was, it definitely was not, there were not many of us. <laughs> but I think their reign is incredibly impressive and I'm glad that they're still outselling themselves even to this day. I'll forever be a posh spice, even though I can't afford anything from Victoria Beckham's clothing line. And I think I'll forever be a sporty spice, even though I am... Striving to be. Striving to be, even though I'm not athletically inclined. I just thought she was cool with her high kicks. Well, I think uh, that about does it for the Spice Girls. Yeah. Thanks for listening and saying that you will be there for this entire hour. You can follow us on Instagram. We're at the Old Millennials Pod, and we promise to make a Facebook page. I think that's what you guys want. I don't know, but you can also follow us individually on Twitter. Something that we'll never make a joint account for. No, I'm at Marg. She wrote, and I'm at Emily A. Beijing. And please check out our 
<laughs> Sorry. Our 21. Please check out our 21 songs of 1999 to accompany our 99 of 99 talk from episode 12. That's available on Spotify. And if you could rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, whatever, that's great because it helps other people find this podcast. And until next week, we say, Zigasay, Zigasay, Girl Power. Girl Power. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.